Vade Satana, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The spiritual battle which each of us wages is something that we um, engage in like a mountain climbing expedition where everyone has to walk their own path, take every step, pass every hurdle, but it's so much easier when everyone's doing it together. And so the church gives us this beautiful season of Lent when we both put things back in their proper order and also intensify and improve what already is um, a sincere spiritual life. Father Sina and I remarked, and I, I mentioned it to other friends and even priests and even priests who are friends, that it was really inspiring to see so many people come to church on Ash Wednesday even when it's not a holy day of obligation. The five masses that we had on Wednesday were basically just as well, if not even better attended than a typical weekend, five masses. So the, the cynical interpretation that some um, put forward is that people come out when they get free things. So they, they come out when they get the, the palms on Palm Sunday, or they come out on Ash Wednesday when, when they get the ashes. But... I really don't think many people are coming on Ash Wednesday because they think the ashes make a great souvenir. There's something much more profound going on. Everyone was made to be heroic. Every soul was made to be a saint. And we yearn for that. We don't always engage it fully, but we yearn for that. In the same way that we can see sometimes everybody wants to hear the, the unvarnished truth. They want to know exactly what's going on. They don't simply want things to be um, made easy for them. They want to go the hard way. We take that into account both when we engage with other people to inspire that greatness and also to take into account the fact that everyone is fighting a battle, as the theologian Philo of Alexandria noted. Be kind to everybody, because everybody is fighting a great battle. So as we do so, it's good to do so with wisdom. Our Lord's 40 days, followed by three temptations, in the desert provide an instruction for us, both in zeal and in wisdom. What I would like to suggest is that you hear it again. It's already very familiar. We know, we know the episode very well. We almost know it word for word. But what I would like you to hear is the possibility of Christ saying these three responses as much to himself, to his human soul, to his human body, as much as to the devil. So we'll go through it step by step and um, see if it helps. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. At once, it is a rebuke. At the same time, his human body is very hungry. The divinity of Christ doesn't mean that his soul doesn't weary and his body doesn't weaken. It's not as though it was easy for him to be deprived of food in the same way that it was not easy for his body to carry the cross. What do we do when our body is wearying? We, we talk to ourselves, don't we? Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Our Lord said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Words are fittingly addressed to the tempter. Also fittingly said out loud for his own benefit. He's not going to play games with God the Father. He's not going to play games with the angels. It's not even, it's not even attractive to do so. It's part of what we need to factor in here. Our Lord wasn't tempted it to sin the way we were tempted to sin. A temptation was presented to him as a possibility. But our Lord is perfect God and perfect man. He doesn't relish the possibility of a sin, but then forego it. It's not even possible. We have that struggle, right? That's the difference between a partial indulgence and a plenary indulgence. So many of us are still attached to sin. We really wish we could do them, even when we don't. But that delighting in the possibility of sin is absolutely absent in our Lord. Then, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then our Lord said to him, Be gone, Satan. And there should be an exclamation mark. Here, obviously, it's only possible, he is addressing the devil. Go away. Varegretu Satana is written on the back of our St. Benedict Medal, V-R-S, Vade Retro Satana. It's the only words you should ever say to the devil. And then our Lord continues, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Remember, the devil probably does not know who our Lord is. He does not know whom he's tempting. He's testing this person. He's been puzzled by him. He sees everything that he does. He hears everything that he says. He notices everything that's ever been said out loud about him. 
He's never observed in all of his centuries and millennia of observing human beings, he's never observed a man like this. Remember the first two the first two temptations begin with if you are the son of god see filius deus as to we take great comfort in knowing that the devil doesn't know our thoughts he doesn't know our heart he sees what we do he hears what we say and i've been reassured by Exorcist that when he even hears what we say in the confessional, it doesn't even give him an advantage to know what we what sins may have lurked inside of us that he didn't know about. Because as soon as he hears them, they're absolved by God. They mark the devil's defeat. They don't give him any advantage. Meanwhile, our Lord obviously knows exactly who this is taunting him. Do you think if, if the devil knew that this is the second person of the Holy Trinity, do you think he would even suggest that our Lord should worship him? I mean, the devil is dumb, but he's not stupid. He knows that God won't worship the devil. He might say that just to be offensive. Likewise, God knows that the devil can't worship the Lord anymore. He had his chance and it's forever squandered. The devil can't serve God the Father anymore. That possibility was vanquished. It's forever gone. So it may very well be that our Lord is saying this to him. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Almost as a condemnation. In fact, even when the devil is permitted to, to wreak his havoc, it will only be permitted when it serves the purposes of God the Father. So even when the devil is permitted to budge, to move, to say something, it's only for his own demise. But he never will worship God or serve him generously. But our Lord does and even speaks of this and speaks of himself obeying God the Father and serving God the Father and laying down his life for the sheep that belong to God the Father. One lesson that we should take away from this is that the only words that you should ever address to the devil are vade, go away. Even that exclamation mark that we see in the text shouldn't even necessarily indicate shouting or his blood pressure going up or his heart rate accelerating but it's an imperative, it's a command, I order you, go away. But when, when the devil is whispering, taunting, teasing, pushing, nudging, we don't engage him in conversation. We don't argue against him. We ignore him. 
We remind ourselves who we are and what we do. We steal our body, make our mind resolute, strengthen our will. We don't talk to him. We don't remind him. We don't even taunt him or ridicule him. Leave that to the exorcists. We just simply remind ourselves who we are. We're a child of God forever and ever. Protected by the angels, loved by, loved by the Father, washed by the blood of the Son. Sacred Scripture teaches us this lesson over and over again. First Peter chapter 5 is what we read at night prayer in the office of Compline on Tuesdays. Compline is very short. If, if you make that step of incorporating the liturgy of the hours into your prayer life, which I strongly recommend, uh, it's easy to do so too quickly and to be overwhelmed and then quit. So don't do that. Compline is the easiest hour to incorporate into your day. It's a short examination of conscience and act of contrition, a hymn, psalm, short reading, a gospel canticle, antiphon to the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's a perfect way to end the day. On Tuesdays in the New Bravery, we read this and from 1 Peter 8 verses, or 1 Peter 5 verse 8 to 9. Stay sober and alert. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, solid in your faith. The larger paragraph helps us, so I'll read now 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. Same simple lesson, just resist, and he goes away. Everyone has to engage in this individually. It's much easier when we are all reminded that we are all doing it together. The letter of St. James chapter 4 teaches the exact same lesson, verses 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In fact, both St. Peter and St. James include that very same phrase, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How do we do that? St. James makes it even more explicit. Mourn, mourn your sins. Do penance for your transgressions. Be reminded that 
this humility in, in the wake of our sins isn't just at the moment of confession because it will take a great deal of time and effort and grace to heal the damage we've done. Being a, confessing and being absolved is almost the easy part. The next part that ensues of, of continuing to be humbled by and reminded of what we've done and the damage we've caused because we have to do reparation for it will continue. When we've harmed a relationship, we can't just apologize once. We can't just simply assume that uh, one simple acknowledgement is all that it takes to, to repair that bridge. In fact, in our lifetimes, we will never cease to mourn and weep for the sins that happened. We do so as Christians, though. We do so in Christian humility, the kind of humility that brings us closer to God, not flee away from him. Not oblivious, but allowing that battle being waged over our souls to be taken up by God and the angels and the saints. We simply have to resist the devil. He will flee. Eventually, we will become a waste of his time. He's not omnipotent. He does not have unlimited resources. And so we learn from a very young age, for good reason, the prayers that give us this disposition of being resolute and calm, reminding ourselves who we are, turning to God for help. We're aware of the battle, but, but we don't engage the devil. We allow others to engage the devil on our behalf. Think of the St. Michael prayer that we said. Almost all of us said it, probably with eyes closed. It gives us comfort to say, St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. If you had no familiarity with that, if you all of a sudden just simply saw those words, you would think that this would be said by someone who's grimacing, who's got a shield and a spear and a helmet, and they're, and they're, and they're afraid or they're angry. But that's not how we pray it, because we pray it as Christians. Engaging with the devil isn't our job. We allow the angels and the saints to do that. It's the power of God that protects us. It's the presence of God inside of us that protects us. And so as simple children, we learn these words before, even before we know what they mean, so that that sentiment is always on our heart. Yes, we're always aware of the battle. And we're always confident in God and the angels and the saints. So I encourage you to be ready. <clears throat> you are not engaging in Lent simply to lose a few pounds. You're not engaging in Lent simply to take up a, a mild little practice that you will drop like a hot rock at Easter. You're engaging in spiritual battle. You are either putting everything back to the way it ought to be again, which the devil won't want, and or you are taking that next step in a serious move closer to God, 
which the devil will try to prevent. He will do everything he can. All you need to do is resist and ignore him and tell him to go away. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.